We're going to be in Acts 5 once again this evening. We opened up with the first 11 verses last week, and if you were with us, you know that uh, Acts 5 comes in like a lion uh, in this chapter. It's going to keep the momentum going, and uh, I think we have an awesome study in store for us tonight. Uh, Our study last week was all about momentum, and really the whole study through Acts has been about the momentum of God from heaven toward earth. Um, And our study last week was about maintaining the momentum of God's movement, which tonight's going to be kind of a part two of that conversation, maintaining the momentum of God's movement. So we've characterized the book of Acts, uh, particularly the study or the church in Acts, as God's movement. Um, It's not just a static building or institution. It's a movement from God that started uh, during the ministry, of course, of Jesus, but uh, got to a start uh, in this phase on Pentecost. Uh, God's movement uh, is the right way to describe the church because the church is his work, and he's working through the people of God, through you and I to this day. Uh, We talked about the impact uh, that is clearly on display in Acts and can see, uh, on, you can see it on display throughout history. But what, what we've witnessed uh, in the narrative that leads to Acts 4 and, and leads to Acts 5, there's an awareness on the part of the disciples uh, that they need to lean in continually and lean in constantly towards God so as to maintain the momentum. That it started off with a bang, but they were conscious of the reality that unless they leaned in, unless they stayed leaning toward God and all in with God, that they might would somehow hurt or halt the momentum. And they are aware that they have got this onus or they have got this responsibility. We'll talk about that a lot tonight. They have this sense of alt that we've got to stay all in. We've got to stay both feet on the gas. We have got to keep all of our weight towards and leaning on God so that we maintain this momentum, that we maintain this pace that God is working towards and through us. So, you know, we read the stories, we marvel at their prayer for boldness when they had already been very bold. And we wonder, why would they pray for more boldness? They've already been more bold than anyone else would ever be in their situation. Why would they pray for more? Because they knew that they had to maintain the momentum. One, that day was great, but they had another day that was about to come. We are mouth agape at their actions when they divest and donate and redistribute their possessions at no one's command, mind you, but clearly at God's unction. We are stunned when Barnabas makes the radical decision to sell his most prized possession. No Levite would have land in his day, yet he had acquired some land. He didn't keep it. He gave it to the church, or gave the proceeds to the church. Yet we should not be surprised at this at all. As so foreign to us as it is, we should not be surprised that they would do this. It's simply what they believed they had to do to maintain the momentum of the movement. Jesus had constantly signaled that, that the kingdom of God would be built off and by sacrifice. Obviously, his own death displayed this. His own teaching uh, was, was always regarding the sacrifice he was going to do, that he was calling his own to do, in order to see God work. He was always talking about what it would cost to see the kingdom of God be established. So this, we shouldn't be surprised that they were willing to do this because they had been taught that this was the way, not just an option, or for extreme Christians. It was for, the, the, for all Christians. 
this isn't just a New Testament thing. This isn't just a Christian thing. Read the Old Testament. You see Abraham was called to make big choices many times in his life. He was called to give up everything because there might be something better. When he was called from Ur, when he was called to take his son to the top of the mountain, he was always faced with sacrifice, and he was always obedient. We talk about Joseph who didn't have a choice. He didn't choose to go to Egypt and lose everything and then get put in prison and lose everything and then wait for 13 years. But he cooperated with God because he believed that what God was ordaining was going to be worth something in the end and that what he was going through was for the greater good. He believed that he was being, his life was being sacrificed for the good of other people, and of course it was. But he cooperated with it. Moses, of course, gave up his fleeting treasure for an eternal cause. David's life is a story of the rug being pulled out from under him no less than three times. When he's a young boy, when he goes from home to the palace to, be a, uh, to play a harp for Saul, when he gets thrown out of the palace by, his, by Saul, by his father-in-law because of Saul's ego, uh, he goes out into the wilderness for years. When, again, when he's older and his own son rebels against him, he goes and lives in the wilderness again. So David's life was about giving up what he had because he believed that God's will was leading him to something better. He vowed to be sacrificial in all seasons of life because he was so convinced that that's how God operated. Jesus, consistent with God's record, preached the cost of following him in tandem, and this is important, he preached the cost of following God in tandem with the exclusive reward that was found in following God. He told these amazing parables. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up or a man became aware of and put an X on the map and said, hey, I gotta gotta go see that treasure. But turns out they didn't know where it was at in the field. So the man in his joy sold all that he has and he bought the field. But the treasure was just somewhere in the field, but he wasn't gonna risk missing out on the treasure. So he bought the whole field because he knew it was worth it. To emphasize even more, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one of great value, he was looking for a whole basket, but he only found one, but this one was so valuable and so worth it, he sold all that he had, and he bought the pearl. Here's the crazy thing. What we studied last week and what leads us into this week, the disciples literally believed every word that came out of Jesus' mouth. Novel idea, I I know. But when Jesus said stuff like this, when he said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is full of so much joy and so much fulfillment that it's worth giving up everything for. When he said this, they didn't just think, well, he's being hyperbolic. He's being a preacher trying to persuade me to give him money. He didn't, they, they didn't think he was just trying to sell, sell them on something that wasn't real. They literally believed what he said was absolutely true. And they practiced a lifestyle that suggested they were trying to get what he was offering them. I know, crazy, right? They literally believed what he said and actually did what he said they should do. Every time they obeyed him, guess what? They realized that he was absolutely right. Likewise, when they disobeyed him and those that did not take him serious, they should have saw the results coming. Now, we contrasted Barnabas' generosity with Ananias and Sapphira's greed in our study last week. Their dismissive heart towards what God was doing. Now, we remembered the words of the rich fool who said, I've got all these treasures, I'll build bigger barns, I've got life made. How his arrogance and denial of reality was seen in Ananias and Sapphira. 
in their efforts to keep a little bit for themselves, they lost everything, including themselves, just like Jesus said they would. Does that register with you? They lost everything, including themselves, just like Jesus said would happen. Now, this message really butts heads with 21st century thinking, especially 21st century religion, because the popular sentiment in today's world is that building God's kingdom is all about building our own at no cost, but only personal gain. That's what drives movements in our world. It's not a desire for God, though, but it's really a desire for self that's disguised as worship. It's no wonder the church has been infiltrated with this deception because it was so hard to accept by those who wanted to follow Jesus in his day, but they could not stomach the cost. It's not that he always required great sacrifice, but it's that his spirit always made it clear that there was more joy found and that joy was only ever found just across the border of sacrifice. That if you want what God really has for you, and I don't mean physical possessions, I mean true joy, contentment, and peace, and a, and, and, a, and, a, and a walk with God that is unrivaled by any experience of this world. If you want that, Jesus always taught it's just across the border of sacrifice. There was a rich man that came to Jesus inquiring what he needed to do to get this abundant life that Jesus talked about so much. Jesus briefed him on the commandments just to see what he was made of. Of course, he knew where this was going, but he played along. And he said, hey, buddy, well, you know the commandments. You know what the Bible says you should do. And the man said, of course, I've done all those things, but I'm still missing something. You know, I, I, I've been obedient, and I know obedience is the pathway to true joy, but, you know, I just feel like I just got something else that I need. And Jesus said, of course, you're right. Which brings me to an area that you lack obedience in. And this guy did not see this coming. Luke 18, Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack. And the man was thinking, well, what have I missed? <laughs> Jesus said, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And you talk about silence. You talk about, did he really say that? I mean, come on, I think Peter and John are behind him thinking, Jesus, this guy could donate to our cause. We don't need all that he's got. We just need a tenth of what he's got, and we could build the finest of palaces and the finest of temples and all the things that we need to get our movement off the ground. Jesus, what are you, you know, don't, don't do this, Jesus. You always go too far with these people, and they run away. Just, just, just let the guy join the movement. And Jesus said, I'll let the guy join the movement, but he's not, I don't want his money, but there are people out here that need what he's got because he thinks he's found himself in this stuff, and it's not defining him at all. He's got to get rid of it, and i got to tell him, what to do with it. Jesus always had a way of going right to the heart of the matter, didn't he? He said, if you want true joy, if you want true treasure, not of this world, but in heaven, you need to get rid of all that stuff that you're holding on to because it's not making, any, making you joyful. It's not making you happy at all. It's holding you back, but it can help other people give it away and come after me. Now, we should know where this is going by now. The man heard these things and he said, became very sad. Of course, he became very sad, but Luke wants us to know why he was very sad, as if we can't infer. He was extremely rich. Jesus, of course, would say this to an extremely rich person. Jesus said, seeing that he became very sad, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Those, who, those whose wealth has them, like Ananias and Sapphira. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That was an expression, a rabbinic tale in those days that described just how something 
seemed to be impossible. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? I mean, Jesus, who would, no one's going to do what you just told the guy to do. No one is going to do that, Jesus. No matter what you offer them, nobody is going to give away a tenth of what they have, let alone all that they've got. Come on, Jesus, come down to earth. Get into the, see the bigger picture, see the real world. And then Jesus, because he never missed a beat, he looks right at those people that are thinking this is impossible, and he says, hey, you think it's impossible, but it's possible with God. Because when you get a hold of what God's got, you will see the joy and sacrifice. Now, now Peter, Peter, <laughs> Peter's sitting there thinking, I hope he's not going to ask us to do this stuff. I mean, I haven't been home in three years, which isn't that bad, but you know, <laughs> I haven't been home in a long time. You know, I go home every once in a while, but pretty much I stay after him, and he feeds me, takes care of me. But Peter, Peter saw this, and he said, well, see, we've left everything, Jesus. So, I mean, what's in it for us? Don't you see where Peter's going? He's getting out. I mean, Jesus, we've given up everything. I mean, we left the Israeli dream, and we followed you, and you know, I hope there's something that's going to be worth it in the end of this. And then Jesus does what he always does. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house and wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, of course, for a reason, for a purpose, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what does Jesus not say there? He doesn't say then you're going to receive all the stuff that you think that God's going to give you. It's that he's going to give you eternal life and he's going to give you something that's not tangible and it's not measurable and it can't be stacked or stacked, put in barns, but it's something better. And yeah, you'll get a taste of it in this life, but the real joy is coming in the next life. Just wait, but do you believe? Do you have faith? Do you have enough trust in God to actually believe on him on this and follow him through with this? See, going forward, we see the disciples wrestle with this promise from God as it rubbed up against their reality beyond just financial sacrifice with their own skin in the game and their own lives on the line. And you know what we see over and over again in Acts? We see a consistent submission to the momentum of God. They did not want his movement to be halted, especially because of their resistance. They didn't want to halt the movement of God, and they didn't want to be responsible for halting the movement of God, most importantly. There was a reverence for the presence of God in those days. Not just in the sanctuary, not just in the house gatherings. They didn't really have a sanctuary, most of you know this. Uh, there really weren't, uh, they really didn't have a, 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 a consistent meeting place. They were just meeting wherever they could. Uh, it was always changing because it was illegal to be a Christian in those days. And yes, they were bold, but they were not foolish. They weren't putting a sign out front saying, hey, this is the first church of, of, of Jerusalem. They were meeting kind of off the grid uh, in upper rooms, wine presses, catacombs, caves, wherever they could get and wherever they were safe. Now, wherever they met, though, wherever they met, they knew that God was with them. They didn't just feel him in the holy places, but every place they gathered and even where they went off of Sundays, they knew was the dwelling place of God. And here's, I think, one of the biggest contrasts between us and them. And I'm not picking on us. I'm just trying to draw this out of us. See, we are only sensitive, but we are mostly sensitive to God in certain places on certain days when we're in certain modes, aren't we? Because we have this temple theology built into our faith that shouldn't be there. We say certain words as long as we're in, or we don't say certain words as long as we're not in certain places. We do certain things and we think certain things as long as we're in the certain places. And if we're in a holy place, we don't bring that stuff with us. 
which that explains why God's activity is so uncertain because we kind of play the part on certain days of the week, right? We aren't sensitive nor inviting him. We aren't reverent and we don't tremble like they trembled. We just don't. We get super spiritual in church, but we don't walk around as they walked around everyday activity as if God is with us and as if God wants to use us going to the temple to pray like they went or going through an average everyday run-of-the-mill you know, series of events. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we've explained and funneled God out of our finances. We've dismissed him out of every area of life, except for when we get serious about our faith a few hours a week. And no wonder, no wonder, and I talk to me about, I'm talking to me, no wonder his movement is halted. No wonder his momentum is in the negative. The early church welcomed God into every area of their life. Every square inch. And as a result, we read verses like Acts 5 verse 12, where the scripture tells us that through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, which was pretty much just a gathering place, a social square in the town. This, is, this isn't necessarily a church service or a, 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 a worship service. This is just a, a, a place that you go and hang out, a place where you would go and, and, and spend time with people, a, a place where you would intersect with each other, kind of like the, uh, the, the place that Paul goes at Mars Hill. It's just a hangout. It's a social scene. Now, the Greek here says, suggests that the, 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 the idea of this verse is that God was doing things through their hands on a regular day-to-day basis. The, the Greek word there is it's that God was doing things regularly through the people. And there's a reason for this. The church was constantly outward-facing. Outward-facing, as in they were constantly thinking, hey, we have a responsibility. We have a social responsibility. We have a, 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 a footprint in our society. We've got to be facing our world, and we've got to be intersecting with our world. We've got to be a force for good and healing in a world that is broken and in need of something better than what they're getting. I mean, look at verse 13. This is so big. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. I mean, that verse is so underrated. I want, you to try, I want to try to make this register with us. They weren't convincing their greatest opponents to join them. But they were constantly impressing them, causing them to be thankful for their presence in the community. And is, that, is that as big, big to you as it is to me? They weren't saying, well, you know what? We don't, those people don't like us, and we don't like them, so we're going to do our thing, and they're going to do their thing, and we're just going to mind our own business, and we're not going to intersect with them. They don't deserve us. And we don't really want to be near them anyway. I mean, these people, the, the Jewish religion definitely had that mentality. The religious leaders, they didn't want to be around anyone who was unclean. Remember when the Pharisees took Jesus to Pilate and wanted Pilate to crucify him? But Pilate said, y'all come on in. They said, oh, we can't come in because we'll be unclean. But could you please kill this man for us? See ya. I mean, that's the kind of hypocrite, hip hypocrisy that is in religion. I mean, we'll do deals with the devil if it gets us advancing in life, but hey, we'll play spiritual if, it, you know, if we have to because, hey, we can't be unclean. We can't get in that guy's presence, but we can get him to do an unclean thing for us. I mean, their religion was not at all worried about trying to impress people. And I don't mean trying to you know, win people's, I'm not, not impress people on a social way or in a worldly way, but make a difference in the world where they can't deny the good and the healing that we're bringing to society. Now, I know, I know we say that our world is just too far gone. 
This could never describe our relationship with the world. That's what we say, isn't it? We, we give up on verse 13 being said about our world, the, our enemies or our you know, opposition regarding us. But let me remind you, this world that we're reading about in Acts 5 and prior to, this world was actively trying to pin a reason to kill Christians. Doesn't sound too great, does it? This world had just successfully crucified God, right? Son of God on the cross. This was a world where people would go to worship their pagan gods and their temples would be, they would be greeted by prostitutes when they would go to worship. So I know we say their world wasn't as bad as ours, but, you know, I think we ought to rethink that. It sounds pretty bad. I don't make light of this because we often are so dedicated against receiving Scripture, we are so deceived by the enemy and take cues from him more than we do Jesus and his word. This tells us that it is possible for the church to be a force for good, even in a world that actively is trying to force us out. Without compromising, without trying to butter up to somebody, by just being who we've been called to be. We don't want to admit this, but maybe our rhetoric and behavior has stunted our ability to be this kind of force for good. Maybe instead of being on the offense for the kingdom of God, we've, become, we've gotten on the defense when we never really needed to be that way anyway. Maybe our lack of commitment to making impacts like they made in Acts is the reason this can't be said of us. Oh, I don't know if I want to join, these people said, but man, I'm glad they're around. I don't know if I want to be one, but I'd love for my daughter to marry one. I don't, know where, I don't know if I want to be one of those crazy Christians, but man, I'm glad they're in our community because where would we be without them? I mean, they believe some wild stuff. They're old-fashioned or they're so out of date or they're so weird and, and they do some weird stuff and they sing some weird songs and they have some different beliefs, but many of them do so much good. Their generosity and their kindness and their purity and their peacemaking is beyond what we've come to expect out of this world. We are so glad they are here. Now, I know we've given up on the world thinking that about us. But if these people thought that about the church in their day, and a couple verses from this, from this verse, they're trying to kill these people. <laughs> so church, I think we have got to stay focused on what we can be good at. And as easy as this is to come up with, it's so foreign to sometimes our behavior. What we can be good at is being Christ-like. Doing what Jesus did and not trying to get entangled in stuff that we really have no business being entangled with or trying to worry about stuff that God says I've got. Remember back in Acts, 5, or Acts 4, they prayed, Lord, take care of that stuff that we don't have any control over, but God, until then, use us to be your people. Use us to be your hands because what verse 12 and 13 tells us is exactly what they prayed for God to do, and God was doing it. So they were focused on being good at what they could be good at, which was being like Christ. And you know what was the result or what will be the result? We may not win everyone, but we will win more than we currently are or would otherwise. Verse 14 says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes. Now, verse 15 and 16, God reminds, or we're reminded that God was continually confirming to those in the towns and those around the towns that he was in this movement. He was sanctioning the movement. He displays his power over sin by demonstrating his power over sickness. We see they come out and lay sick in the streets and they lay their beds on in, in, in the streets. And it, Scripture says that even Peter's shadow was healing people, which is just completely beyond us to comprehend. But that's how much God's hand was on this movement. God was doing miraculous things that could not be explained to nobody's credit but his. 
Verse 16 says, The multitude gathered from the same surrounding cities, to bringing their sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, people that were possessed. See, we don't even talk about people being under unclean spirits in today's world because we just, you know, oh, that's just so foreign to us. But there's plenty of people that are tormented by unclean spirits, and the church is not doing its job praying for those people and bringing those people in the presence of God. We don't want people with questionable lifestyles in our churches, let alone they can't get close to Jesus. They were all healed. The word healed is not just a physical healing, but it's the, it's the Greek word sozo, which means saved. They were saved. Their lives were changed. Addictions were broken. Uh, you know, relationships were restored. Lives were come back, came back from being all but gone. This would not, as we read throughout Acts, this is the standard by which God continually makes his mark known on the world. And the church continually has this outward-facing ministry. But just as there was this God response, just as God responded to their sensitivity to him and their welcoming him into their presence, the devil also responded. What God set out to drive and defend, Satan showed up to destroy. 5.17 tells us what happens next. Then the high priest rose up and all who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Or jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, the angel of the Lord opened the door, opened the prison doors, and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported. And then they say, hey, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. (laughs) We've read this story before, haven't we? Now, if I'm making this up, another reason why I believe the Bible is inspired, because nobody would make this up. If I'm making this up, the the way this goes in my story is, God opened the doors and he said, go far away. You've been faithful in this area of of great test. Go, you'll find a treasure trove of money and supplies. You've proven you're better than everybody else. You'll never have to worry about this kind of threat again. Run away and don't come back near this place because these people are evil. If I'm making this, if I'm writing this story, that's what happens because these people deserve a reward for being faithful to get locked up for their preaching. And yet, the way the story goes is God says, Hey, I'm laying out of prison, but here's what you got to do. You need to go back where you were arrested and start doing the same thing that got you arrested. Go back and risk being arrested again and risk making them even more angry and probably making them, if they weren't going to kill you, they're definitely going to kill you now. I mean, is that, can you, can, that's just beyond me. Remember, this is about maintaining momentum. God was going to take care of them, but he was also making it clear that they had to continue to trust him even when he gave them less than ideal orders. Verse 24, the high priest, when the high priest, the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What is wrong with these people? Why would they go back and do the same thing that got them arrested the first time? Then the captain went with the officers and brought them in without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. So kind of a reversal of fortunes. Now the people are threatening to stone the guard. So verse 27, and when they brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked him, 
did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, they come across offended that they, they keep getting defied, and rightfully so. They come across offended that the disciples keep defying their orders, but I think there's something deeper going on here. I think they are equally amazed at how and why the disciples would continue risking their lives. I mean, what would you do if an angel of the Lord showed up and you were in prison for preaching the gospel and he let you out and said, hey, you're free? I mean, I think I would conveniently forget that he told me to go back to the place I was arrested. I think I would say, well, God, thank you for this miracle. I'm going home or I'm going on vacation. You won't be able to find me for a while. Yet they were obedient to this radical commandment. I mean, they know the courts mean business, and yet they keep on preaching. Don't you think the authorities had to be equal parts insulted and inspired by this display? And then verse 29 is one of those just larger than this world verses. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought or we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Haven't forgot that, guys. Him God exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior and gave repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That's why we're not afraid of y'all, because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. But hey, the reason why we keep doing this, even though you keep telling us to not do it, is because we have an obligation. We must. The religious leaders were hoping they could convince the church that it was too risky, too inconvenient, too demanding to preach Jesus, putting him above all, put too much on the line. The devil must have been trying to get them to walk back of their extravagant, sacrificial lifestyles. But Peter's words ring so loudly and convict us so much, don't they? God's word behind it makes this passage so heavy. 2,000 years later, Peter says, We must obey God rather than men. Literally, the Greek for that, we must, is it is necessary to obey God rather than men. There's a little, little Greek word behind the phrase we must or it is necessary. It's the Greek word day. Scholars refer to this as the divine day. In the Greek, you see this word. Anytime you see we must or we ought or we, it is necessary, it's one Greek word that carries this important weight. It means must or necessity or necessary. It echoes the words of Jesus in Luke when he said to his parents at the temple when he was just a boy, I must be doing my father's business. When he started his ministry, I must preach the gospel here, there, and everywhere. When he was going to Jerusalem knowing he would be killed, I must go to Jerusalem. When he was going to Samaria to meet the woman at the well, I must go through Samaria. Easy for Jesus to say, but Peter... Facing death, having just said goodbye to all that he loved and have lived for. Now you know I have to do this as we close. Because we're trying to replicate this early church momentum and we want to keep this momentum going. We have to juggle a lot of must in this world, don't we? Think about how many times a week or how many times a day we think, I've got to do this. I've got to get this done today. I've got to do this. I must. We don't use the word must, but that's the gist of it. So let me ask you this. What determines your musts. How do you figure all that out? How do you prioritize this or that? Your family's a must, right? It should be. Your job's a must. It's got to be. Your bills are a must. 
You owe yourself a hobby, that's a must, at least once in a while. You gotta go shopping, that's a must. You gotta go to the doctor, that's a must. Urgent sometimes, right? You got appointments, visits, I mean, we can start today, we can think of a lot of musts, can't we? We'll get overwhelmed and wonder, why the heck are we sitting here? Because we got a lot of musts to do, don't we? Maybe you see where we're going with this, because it's very easy for this to not be one of those musts, isn't it? Why is any given priority your must, though? Well, because you know, if I don't go to work, I'll get fired. And if I, don't, if I get fired, I'll lose my house. I'll lose my stuff. If I don't go home, I'll, I'll be family consequences. If I don't do this, you know, you won't, I won't be happy. You know, If I don't, my life won't. I mean, that's why you must, right? If I don't do this, then life just won't go like it needs to go. So how do we prioritize our must and our necessities? We go by that, don't we? But where do we draw the line? That obedience to a person or a thing is a must. And it's not, I've got to do this because they tell me it's, it's I got to do this because I have to. Something inside of me or something around me tells me I've got to. I've got a job to do, classes to pass, bills to pay, family to feed. I've got a mortgage, a car, several bills, credit, debt, all these things, doctor visits and everything. We got a lot of musts, don't we? And sometimes it's not just, it's not just that, that there's external pressure, but there's also internal pressure. I mean, on top of all that stuff or underneath all that stuff, you've got dreams and you've got goals that you're trying to reach and you're trying to make time for things you want and I think we can bottle up what determines our must into these two things I think our must come down to things that we care about and things that we can't live without the barometer determines our must if we care we got to if we can't live without we've got to so this leads me to ask this question that you knew I was going to ask because I'm a preacher and I'm this is church and this is the end of the service so of course this is our conversation where does Jesus rank on your list of musts? And of course, he includes those things, especially family, but you know, y'all know what we're talking about. Where does Jesus and where does maintaining the momentum of God in his movement rank among your musts? I'm talking about everything that comes along with serving the Lord, prayer, sacrifice, obedience, church, serving others, the lifestyle of being a Christian. And here's where there's something in us that will rise up if we're not carefully aware, because I know this from experience. There's one thing that we push back against. It's being told that Jesus and his kingdom are more important than other stuff. We don't like that, do we? Because it kind of convicts us. But it's absolutely true. Jesus and his kingdom are more necessary than anything else. Obeying him is our greatest necessity. And I know, I know, we, we resist the notion that we must serve God. We want to choose to serve God, and you can choose to serve God. But remember, this must isn't a man-made, man-driven, man-enforced order. It is a divine necessity. It is an inner compulsion, an inner conviction. It is from the deepest part of your soul. And you know it, don't you? You feel it, don't you? You have a creator who's made you and made himself known to you through Jesus. He's your savior because you, we are sinners in need of redemption and we found that in Jesus. We have been given a chance at new life and a better life through Christ and this calls to us. I don't want to overreach, but let me suggest that there may be something very crucial on the line in your heart tonight that something inside of you says is more important than anything else. That when it comes to your spiritual care, when it comes to attending to your soul and what your soul requires of you, that is your most important must.
I know there's a lot on the line that requires a lot from you. I know there's pressure from every angle. But here's what else I know. Your soul must be your top priority. Yes, faith is a voluntary thing. Yes, God is gracious. But we're talking about you, aren't we? I mean, as much as you think this world requires of you, your soul demands more. It does. There's more on the line when it comes to ignoring your soul than if you were to ignore every other must in your life. Because it's on the edge of eternity every second of every single day. It knows what is really going on. It's sensitive to who and what really matters. So i got to ask you, how determined are we to maintain the momentum of God's movement and God's activity in your life? How committed are we to His calling? So much that we would say we must when up against this kind of fire. Where does, what does your soul require of you? Peter had heard Jesus preach sermon after sermon, and he wondered once if following Jesus was worth it. He asked Jesus, remember, Lord, what's in it for me? And here in this moment that echoes through time, Peter answers his own question all of those years later. The reward is knowing Jesus and having a hope that's worth the risk. Worth saying, I must for. What do you say I must for? In Peter's shoes, what would your response be? Let me pray for you.